0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keen On, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it is Thursday, October the 22nd, no, October the 27th, 2022. I'm getting the dates wrong these days. When you try to think of dates, you get them wrong. When you don't think of them, they're right. Uh, COVID may be over, but the crisis of American healthcare certainly isn't. We've done many shows on the crisis of American healthcare, particularly in the context of how it's affecting the doctors themselves, whether they're being affected, whether they're the causes of it. Robert Pearl has been on my show a couple of times. He's a distinguished MD and he has a book out called Uncaring How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, suggesting that doctors are just as miserable as patients in the dysfunctional uh, American healthcare system. Uh, Dr. Pearl has also been on the show recently talking about the parallel pandemics of COVID, anxiety, and gun violence. Uh, he believes they're all part of the same crisis of American healthcare. Uh, more recently, we had Alex Jahingir on the show. He is a, a doctor from uh, Tennessee, very much involved with the COVID task force there. He has a diary called Hotspot, a doctor's diary from the pandemic, showing how tough life was for not just patients and people who got sick, but doctors during the, the COVID pandemic. We also did a really fascinating show, I thought, with a young female doctor, Anna DeForest from uh, an ER uh, hospital in New York. She's written uh, a novel called A History of Present Illness. And we talked about how American medicine does a really bad job of dealing with life's greatest mystery, which is, of course, death. Um, We are back on this subject of doctors and misery and how to make us more cheerful and how to cheer doctors up with my guest today. um, Michael Steen, uh, MD is a is a much published writer and he has a new book out accidental kindness, a doctor's notes on empathy. Uh, Michael is joining us from uh, province uh, from Providence in Rhode Island. Michael, welcome.
1: Thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
0: I almost gave away your secret, Michael. You commute backwards and forwards uh, to Cambridge, uh, which you said is a nightmare commute. Is that one of the reasons why you think doctors struggle mentally? They work too hard. They commute all the time. They don't have any downtime. Oh,
1: I I wouldn't say that that's why. And I'm not sure that they all struggle mentally. It depends on what they end up doing. But um, I think there is certainly statistics that suggest there's a bit of a burnout and following this pandemic, for sure. But there there are many reasons, I think, why that's true and been true for the last 30 or 40
0: years. I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Robert Pearl. What do you think of his thesis in Uncaring uh, about the misery of doctors in the current system? Do you think he's right?
1: Um, I, I'm not I'm not certain that he's right. I mean I think that there is a system that <clears throat> forms doctors. There's a medical training system. there's a system that seems to employ doctors as so many more doctors are employed at the moment. And um, I think both are shapers of medical culture, but in the end I think that, doctor's decisions about how they want to live their lives and how they want to work in those settings where they choose to work are are often quite privileged and 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 uh can be made with uh, thoughtfulness that perhaps protects people's mental health so let's hope that doctors will do that and not be uh, drawn forward into despair
0: michael my daughter's at college she's got a few friends who um are planning at least to go to medical school. They all acknowledge it's very forbidding and some of them seem scared off by it. Do you think that the current profession attracts a type of person who, to borrow from the subtitle of your book, may lack empathy?
1: Uh, I think that there is a a mix now um, that's much more... Um, obvious to medical admissions, medical school admissions that that they need to serve many kinds of patients, that they need uh, a diverse group of doctors, that they need a racially and ethically diverse group of doctors, they need a group of doctors who will both practice very technical surgical care and a group of doctors who need to do primary care. And I think that uh, committees are more alert than they uh, used to be for sure. I think the training of doctors remains um, a bit stiff um, and in many places um, uh, difficult to uh, escape from without some sense of coldness on, on the part of uh, medical students. But I do think a lot of this is is who's selected with some cultural shaping after that.
0: As I said earlier, you've written a number of books. Uh, Annie Dillard said about your writing, uh, no other writer has captured the essential truths about illness with as much clarity, which is quite a compliment coming from such a distinguished writer as Annie Dillard. Why did you feel you needed to write this new book, Accidental Kindness, A Doctor's Notes on Empathy? Uh, w- what are you saying in this book that you haven't said in your other work?
1: Yeah, I think that this book, this book is a, a series of, of essays that I wrote over approximately a decade that came about really because uh, I was thinking about particular patients and particular ways that I've acted and thought during this past decade. And um, incidents that I thought were kind or unkind on my part that I often wasn't aware of at the time. And in retrospect, um, I thought it was worth citing. Uh, The shape of the book really is about sort of some mistakes I made with some patients and how that led me to take a bit of time off and then search out perhaps why I made mistakes and um, why uh, I think that kindness is important, as I, as I point out in the beginning of the book, that I remember being asked decades ago in medical school, you know, on a survey from some graduate student who was passing through, do, would you prefer to be intelligent or kind? And, you know, at the start of medical school, the with, you know, reams of facts and tests a, a ahead of you, the answer was, well, in, intelligent. And and of course, that was probably the wrong answer over the source, the long, the long course of a career. And uh, I probably should have checked off kindness on that. And so now I'm, I'm getting back to re-answering that survey decades later.
0: What about if you rephrase the question? Would you rather be kind or right? Yeah, which well, is that, sort of implied in that question of being intelligent or kind.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting question. So, you know, I think that from a patient's point of view, so, you know, I'm writing this as the, as a patient, as a former patient, as the son of patients, as a friend of patients, as well as a, as a doctor that, you know, we seek comp- competence from our medical providers and kindness of course, doesn't matter um, or matters far less in um you know, life and death moments, that is, um, and we can come to talk about, I'm sure we will about what kindness really is, and I think, or the many things that it is, but that at the moments of life and death, that kindness perhaps matters less, and certainly skill and competence matters the most. So kindness is sort of layered on to um, acute medical care. But, you know, we're so used to being led to think that Acute medical care is medical care, right? It's what's on TV, it's what's on movies, right? It's what's in emergency rooms. But of course, most of medical care is far slower, far less dramatic in certain ways, far more chronic. And that's, that's typical medical care and typical illness in the United States. And so in those majority of interactions between patients and doctors, I think kindness becomes an essential ingredient
0: my experience as an occasional patient, but just as a, a general consumer of news and information in this country, is that doctors are unusually defensive because of the litigious nature of American business and society. They're always fearful that they're gonna get sued if they, if they give the wrong advice, if they make the wrong evaluation. Do you think that that may be one reason why American doctors, at least, perhaps including yourself, are lacking in empathy and kindness?
1: Um, no, I, I don't think that that's, that plays a part at all. I mean, I think the doctors are, and the studies have shown, the doctors are quite wrong about guessing how often they'll be sued. Uh, they're quite wrong about which patients will, in fact, sue them. Um, they exaggerate. Uh, how often they will be sued and um, and and they're inaccurate about the things that people sue for. They also end up winning most lawsuits. So I think that it is tucked in the back of their mind, as are many things, but I don't think that that's driving day-to-day behavior in many places. I think part of it is culture and knee-jerk reactions to certain situations and lack of Thoughtfulness, and um, part of it is is uh, is, is just uh, not being attentive enough. So no, I don't think litigation is is driving the problems of American uh, health care. I do think that um, you, you know a bit of the corporate mentality, which we started to talk about, and the brevity of the sort of standard visit which is the routine in many mm. uh, corporate-owned practices, forces people to be rushed, and rushing is a, a form of unkindness in many situations, I think. And, um, and so that's something that needs to be resisted, and, and how to do that is a tricky thing. But no, I don't think litigation is um, driving many people. I do think that for certain specialties who, in fact, are sued more often, so surgeons are sued more often, Obstetricians are sued more often than there are certain, um, you know, practices that really follow guidelines and documentation that has to be more exacting that people use to protect themselves.
0: In your experience, Michael, is there a big difference in kindness between the specialist, the expert, particularly the distinguished expert and the medical professionals on the front lines, the nurses, the helpers for nurses?
1: um pro- probably probably so and i think again it's sort of a matter of training and a and a matter of timing right i mean and par- and part of it is really sort of r- the role right so what what is kindness well kindness is really i think a sort of response to sadness that people come to you in in moments that are filled with fear and um, filled with anxiety and filled with sadness. And, and kindness is um, letting a person know once more than once um, that a sad thing has happened and that some existential dimension of a patient's suffering needs to be touched. And I think, I think that keeping that in mind, which means that kindness is both sort of an attitude right, that I've described with a sort of moral dimension with respect for a patient and interest in, in that patient, and a behavior, which is what we do to express that uh, attitude, um, plays out in different people based on, again, their socialization, their role in a healthcare system, um, the urgency of a visit, uh, et cetera. But there are certainly a very kind nurses and physicians assistants and physical therapists. And there are also unkind ones as there are uh, physicians. But um, I think that the keeping in mind of what the patient is expecting from these visits, which is really an acknowledgement that something's wrong um, and it's something wrong with them, both sort of bodily and emotionally as a result is, is what was what leads to kindness and a, and a forgetting of that or a separation of the body from the emotional state is, um, you know, what leads to blunt and humiliating uh, expressions.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting the way you put it because all too often, unfortunately, I don't go to doctors very often, but when one does, one sometimes experiences, shall we say, a almost aggressive cheerfulness. You seem to be suggesting that that kind of cheerfulness shouldn't be confused with kindness. And sometimes cheerfulness on the part of medical professionals might be a manifestation of unkindness.
1: Well, I certainly think that cheerfulness can be false and that patients can do that. Uh, Patients can sense that in their doctors, that doctors, you know, sometimes feel this sort of script of cheerfulness and that they're sort of selling something. And, um, and, and doctors can sense that, that, that the performance of wanting to please patients is often part of medical treatment. And again, doctors, you know, can see and feel directly, you know, a person's human response. So I also think that uh, cheerfulness that sort of hides a certain degree of um, acceptable truth it can be unkind of telling people, you know, falsely that they'll do better than in fact they'll do is problematic as well. And, and, and I think this is true unconsciously because doctors and nurses and other providers want patients to do well. And but I think unconsciously, you know, there's a good literature about how there is um, an overly optimistic prognosis for most conditions. That we, we think and therefore we tell patients that they're going to have better results or better longevity than in fact they are. Part of that may be just ignorance of the facts and part of that might be willful ignorance because we don't want to understand uh, as providers that this chemotherapy is going to give a person two or three extra days of life on average and put them through a hell of a lot. And so we more optimistically bias the presentation of certain treatments that we might offer. So I think that that comes from a good part of us. And I think that it's a risky part as well from from the patient's point of view.
0: In terms of your kindness thesis, um, what do you think of, again, this is my experience, and I apologize if this is a little anecdotal, but my experience is often doctors couch what they're talking about in in the context of statistics, you know, X percent of people in this situation have to go to hospital, X percent recover, X percent die. What's the relationship, Michael, between data, that raw analytical data, which we mostly feed to computers or which is fed to us by computers, and your accidental kindness thesis?
1: Yeah, I think, I think it's unclear what an individual patient really wants to know and when they want to know it, right? So I think that statistics are sometimes under-presented, that is, they're hidden and not provided in a realistic way, and sometimes they're used as an excuse for um, bypassing the emotional part of a of a, of an interaction. So uh, I, I think that it it cuts both ways with statistics. I also think that you know, statistics are tricky in that they are typically presented in the medical literature as sort of averages. And so what might happen to an individual patient could be at the extreme of those averages. I had a friend recently who had, you know, pancreatic cancer, which is really a terrible diagnosis to to get on average for sure. And so the the hope is, and the way he talked about it was listen, you know, I have X percent chance of, you know, being alive at the end of this chemotherapy, which would allow me another X percent chance of surviving a surgery, which would lead me to X percent of so you can walk yourself through these percentages, but um, it is a way of sort of for some patients to really uh, understand a that there could there are outliers to the averages and B that one might have some control of it. right. So we use these numbers to give us a sense of control, which is often a feeling that we don't have when we're ill.
0: Michael, you mentioned earlier that this book of essays um, was was triggered by your own experiences of, of perhaps not being quite as kind as empathetic as you should have been what kind of medicine do you do and perhaps you might mention one particular example where you feel you you let yourself or your patient down
1: yeah well I'm a general practitioner I'm a so-called primary care physician and um you know one of the stories that I tell in the book was was um taking care of a a young woman who uh had uh, an illness that she didn't want named in front of her young child, who she brought to all of her medical visits with me because the young child was, um, you know, somebody who who she couldn't leave alone at at a, at a young age and had no family to to help her, so she would bring these visits. And the I saw this woman over. Years and years, and the young girl would typically play with dolls behind a, a corner of the examining table. I'd lose sight of her. And the story that I tell is about how, at a certain point, um, with the child out of my line of sight, uh, and I was frustrated with my patient for not taking the medicines that I felt would be. Um, useful to her in in prolonging her life and giving her a longer time with this child. And, and I used the word, um, for the, for the, in front of the child who at that point had grown from, you know, the four or five year old who had come in originally to a 10 year old, but still played behind the table in my room. And, um, the child of course knew the name of this illness popped up and the patient, my patient felt that, you know, I had, trespassed, right? That I had violated this great confidence that we had shared over the years of never using this particular illness's name. And, um, you know, she was upset, stormed out, and I, I really never saw her again. And so part of this, you know, was obviously deeply upsetting to me. A, I had made a mistake in front of her, and um, B, you know, perhaps I had made the mistake uh you know, out of my own frustration, which was not a good reason to to lose control of my words and um, and what that meant and how we had come to that point in our relationship. So that was um, a moment that I describe in the book and um, a, and talk a little bit about about that.
0: Again, I'm just listening to this and I, I'm curious: was that um a, a mental or, or or a physical condition? And again. Um... My sort of amateurish response would be that these days, in particular, people seem a lot more sensitive about mental illness than they do about physical illness. Is that fair? And do you think doctors need a particular kind of empathy? You know, Robert Pearl talks about our, the, the, the epidemic of anxiety, uh, particularly in COVID, that goes along with the, the COVID epidemic itself. Is the challenge for doctors? Even more dramatic in in our age of anxiety, where more and more people, especially young people, seem to be afflicted by mental illness.
1: Well, the, the patient that I'm talking about had HIV, so that okay. word that word has obviously been and, and, and continues well, that's to be. That's a HIV. tricky.
0: I, I mean, I completely understand that one, Michael. Right? And you, I mean, nobody <laughs> wants their kids to know that they're HIV positive, whatever, exactly. because it's such a it's Stingy- such a Right. It's such a stigmatized, even though who knows how she got it, but that's not the point.
1: Right. So in that case, it was a, you know, a chronic medical condition. Are mental health conditions um, more fragile at the, at the moment in our culture? I think, yes. I think that's always been true. Are they more prevalent, certainly among young people than they were, pre-COVID? Yes. Were they already high pre-COVID? Yes. So I think that, you know, it's it's relatively rare to talk about these uh, mental health conditions. We provide really pretty abysmal treatment in the United States for mental health treatment. We um, uh, have mental health treatment all around us, affecting us when we see often people homeless on the street or when we hear about gun violence. So the association of mental health problems with um, you know, social tragedy is um, prevalent for us. So mental health conditions remain fraught, even though the treatment of them is very much better than it was a generation ago, but we still have limited number of providers. We still have different laws that affect um, the provision of insurance. Interestingly, our insurance system has decided, you know, before really parity laws of the last decade, which are not always well implemented, to treat mental illness and physical illness differently and insure them differently. So we obviously have a different notion of, of of mental illness, and 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 in some ways, I think it's it's more fearful for us.
0: Let's get on to the e-words in the subtitle of your book, A Doctor's Notes on Empathy. We've done a number of shows on it. We try and look it up. I looked it up on Wikipedia. It's a it's a hard word in some ways to define. What struck me, though, when you do the Google search, is that um, the use over time of the word empathy has dramatically increased since 1950. Why do you think empathy has become one of the most, and, and, and I don't mean this as a criticism of you because it's in the book, but one of our more fashionable words.
1: Yeah, we have a number of words, right? That are fashionable now, right? Everybody has a trauma and everybody is empathetic to that trauma.
0: Authentic Traum- is another word, the A word and the E word and the T word, right? Trauma, authentic, empathetic or empathy. What what's What's the big deal about empathy? Why do we use it all the time today? my theory michael for what it's worth yeah is that we use it because in the past people were naturally empathetic so it didn't need to be talked about today because we're lacking it not just medical professionals but most of us we need to bring it up all the time is there is there any truth to that you think doctors used to be more empathetic in the old days before 1950
1: that's that's an interesting question I think doctors in the old days in, in certain circumstances um, knew their patients better uh, often lived in the same area as their patients uh, in the same town as their patients so there was a sort of uh, shared social life um, mm. that, that I think was different now as we've as our cities have grown as our doctors have um, shifted into corporate, um, situations where they don't follow patients individually, primary care has changed, we're no longer in small practices. So I do think that, I think that things have changed in that way. Um, I do think also, you know, sort of culturally, we're at a moment of particularly low empathy and and certainly of low kindness. Um, So while we use the word more perhaps, um, okay. we're we're having trouble following through on it right i mean we have a, a great divided country in the moment and what
0: you got to do is take an airline all you have to do is go out and sit, sit on an aircraft or queue up to get on an aircraft for a couple of hours to understand the 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 scarcity of empathy in our culture
1: yeah i mean it really it really feels like um you know it, it is it is the sort of final extension in a certain way of American individualism, right? That we, that we're responsible only for ourselves, for our career, for our success and for, in in the, in the case of my work, in terms of our health and that we, we really don't think as a in, in communitarian terms, I think we probably used to much more years ago. And, and the, and the notion of sort of community has, has dropped away. That's, that's, that's not exactly what's happening in the, you know the intimacy of a, of a private medical visit right which is always very uh, uh, personal and intimate but I do think sort of culturally the word is, has come around because um, we are so suspicious and uh, divided at the moment and so um, you know I, I also think that we're sort of we're we're at the same time a very confessional nation in in certain ways, right? And so this idea of of what it looks like to be flooded by emotion and to talk confessionally um, <clears throat> leads to this idea of empathy. Right, well. we're greedy
0: for empathy. We're greedy to receive it. We're less we're less able to give it. And I wonder whether because of how dysfunctional the medical system is, how it's this kind of logical and almost um, surreal extension of American neoliberal capitalism that the doctors have the worst of it in every sense you know because of the charges involved and the financial pressures and the Byzantine nature of the healthcare system you guys um, for better or worse uh, are on the it's not really the the cutting edge, the front line of the, the empathy paradox or the empathy scarcity.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's interesting, but I think you've also sort of left out some old fashioned um, interpersonal pieces here, which is that despite all all that you say, I think most people still go to a physician, with a sort of expectation that this is a perfect person. Not a perfect person privately, perhaps, but will be a perfect person, you know, in this interaction. We 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 don't really accept sort of physician fallibility. And, and in some ways that's right, right? We we don't want our plane, our pilots of planes to be fallible while we're on the plane right, but it's sort of exaggerated for physicians and, um, and, you know, patients have really very little compassion about physician fallibility. And so I do think that, you know, there is that sort of old fashioned split and that patients are always sort of going in with um, an expectation of a person's skill and competence, which is right. But I think it's more than that. At a certain point, they wonder about this doctor's sort of intentions. Are, are they here, you know, trying to shoo me out as fast as they can? Are they here to turn me over so they can get onto their the next patient and they can get home earlier and make more money? Um, you know, that's a, that's a contradictory emotional state for a patient, right, to, to go in both with an expectation of, 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 of perfection and an expectation of sort of um, suspicion almost. Um, And I think that doctors are doing the same thing, right? It's this sort of strange date you're on. You're set up on this date with people, at least with with your initial visits to doctors, sort of separate from chronic illness. You haven't chosen them necessarily. They haven't chosen you. Why do you think you're necessarily going to get it along perfectly with them? Well, you know what are all the factors that are going to drive that? Again, if the, if the encounter is based on something relatively simple and non-emotional, you have strep throat, you have appendicitis. I think nobody notices these things. But I think when, when, when matters are less urgent, um, I think uh, different kinds of relief are needed.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you talk about perfect person, perfect doctor. For some people, That may be an AI, Um, I know you've given some thought to this. Some AI experts like Toby Walsh we've had on the show believe that empathy is our superpower and we certainly shouldn't be teaching computers to be empathetic and certainly we shouldn't be imagining digital doctors being able to display the kind of empathy that perhaps human doctors can't or unable to do. Other people disagree. Another woman on the show, Natalie Petuhoff, who believes that digital technology can deliver more empathy. One of the leading experts on this is an old friend of mine, Sherry Turkle. She's very skeptical of the idea of machines being able to manifest empathy. She teaches at MIT. What's what's your feeling, uh, Michael, on AIs and machine doctors and the idea that perhaps... Um, uh, an AI doctor, a, a, smart do- a smart machine, might be able to deliver empathy better than a human.
1: Well, f- first of all, let's give a shout out to Sherry Turkle, who you know is a a, a dear friend of mine, and and has written about this book and has <clears throat> endorsed this book. So, um, yeah. uh, I, I like Sherry very well, and I and I do think that. Um, Deep down, I I am a romantic like her and believe that, you know, that the essential experience of illness is loneliness. I wrote an earlier book called The Lonely Patient, and I believe that is the experience of of illness. It's a it's it's a it's it's a separation, a psychic separation from the way you used to be um, and before you were ill. So I do think. The question then becomes well can a machine um, pierce that um, loneliness so I guess I'm of two minds about this right so there's 40 year old studies about programs that would do psychotherapy with patients right that that were trained to answer patients um, in conversation and obviously in the last 40 years uh, our machines have gotten better at that. And and that patients, in fact, often can't tell if they were sitting in a separate room whether they're being answered by a human being or a machine. And that there are certainly phrases and uh, tones of voice um, that could exhibit empathy. And I think that many people would respond to that and probably... Um, if if that were a supplement to our worst doctors who are skilled, but had a a voice machine behind them saying empathetic empathetic things, that might be a pretty good hybrid. Um, So on the one hand, I think that that's so that AI could deliver to many people what feels like empathy, but um, I'm not sure that that would be the case. Most of the time, I think that in a human, human interaction, there's a lot as I write about in the book that goes on. That's, that's nonverbal, and that is unconscious, and that is um, delivered without uh, a- anybody being aware of it, and that uh, human beings are receptive to other human beings. So in the end, I think that, uh, you know, on the margins, could, could machine empathy work? Yes, could as a central condition of medical treatment? No. And I do think that you know it also leaves out sort of the body and examinations and other parts of the exam, other parts of the of the clinical visit that um, you know are beside that. But word by word, yes. In fact, one of the essays in the book, as you know, is about scripts. So oh, I was working at a hospital at one point where a consultant was brought in to basically train doctors how to talk to patients so that patients would be more satisfied. They were brought in because the satisfaction score, which was based on patient surveys for this hospital was low. The consultant was brought in to talk to us doctors. And and part of the the delivery over several sessions was the handing out essentially of scripts of things that you could say that were, I felt sort of machine-like that would make people um, more satisfied with uh, their care or satisfied that you cared about them and, and the essay was about sort of my resistance to that. So in the end, I probably uh, finish on the Turkle end of the romantic
0: scale here. Well, Sherry will be relieved. Um, probably it's like chess. The best chess players these days, a combination of humans and computers. Let's end with nature and uh, seeming our challenge of, of, of figuring out who we are as a species. The whole point, of course, of doctors are keeping us certainly healthy, if not alive. We've done some shows with uh, naturalists of one kind or another, science writers. Ed Young, for example, who's a wonderful writer, has a new book out, An Immense World, talking about how animals and understanding animals help humans develop empathy. Another nature writer, Ver, Verlin Klinkenborg, who has who, written extensively in the New York Times his book, The Rural Life, focuses on how writing about nature um, in, uh, empowers us and empowers our own empathy in terms of an inter, what he would call an interspecies understanding of the world. Do you think, I apologize for the long-winded nature of this question, do you think doctors need to just get out and look at other species and Think or rethink our place in the universe, and not just focus on medical research. Boy, that's a hard question. That's a that's a
1: funny one to end on. I mean, I think that that's probably uh, good for us all. I'm not sure it's particularly good for doctors. I think there are much more basic issues for doctors, which is, and maybe it speaks to this a bit, which is, you know, the the notion that one can be sort of really, truly empathetic. I feel what you feel, so-called fellow feeling. I don't really believe in. I think that true empathy is really quite impossible. And to think of it, think that we can perform perfect empathy is in fact sort of self-flattering. And and that what's more important than that is really just curiosity. So if if curiosity leads you to think about the universe and think about yourself and think about your relations with others by or via relations with animals and nature and um, feelings of sublimity, then that's wonderful. But for me, the key remains um, for most physicians, uh, be, be curious, uh, acknowledge the experience of the person in front of you, keep asking and don't think that you understand this person particularly well, because there's, always more to learn
0: well you passed the test michael you can be my doctor hopefully i won't get sick but you seem relatively empathetic you're probably is this is this you at your most or least empathetic
1: oh i i i have no idea how to judge i'm gonna have to bring in somebody in my house to ask that once we see this with this film i'm gonna have to ask i have no idea i feel like this is the way i usually am so um,
0: it's good good to have a doctor who doesn't have an answer who acknowledges their own ignorance to a question that's the beginning of it uh it's a wonderful book a wonderful writer and a wonderful speaker accidental kindness the new book by michael stein uh sorry stein a a doctor's notes on empathy seems pretty empathetic to me certainly more than most doctors so congratulations on your empathy in the new book michael uh what else are you reading what do you enjoy that you would recommend our viewers and listeners
1: Thank you for first of all for these brilliant questions. They really made me think a lot. So I'm going to have to spend some time thinking more about them. So terrific. What about what am I reading? Um, I think anything by the uh, British analyst Adam Phillips is brilliant. Mm. I think he's wonderful. I think the French writer Emmanuel Carrera is really quite interesting. I don't uh,
0: know his work. What does he write about?
1: He's written novels and he's written fiction. I mean, he's written nonfiction that reads like novels. I had re- read a recent book um, <clears throat> about uh, a, a man who is driven to murder his entire family and it's told sort of as a novel, but it's a true life story. But he's written many interesting things. So he's interesting. Um, uh, Hamid Mosin, I think is very interesting mm-hmm. and writes wonderful wonderful stuff. So that's what I've been reading these days.
0: Excellent.